This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Product Coffee, a podcast where product management leaders share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. Welcome to the show. We have a wonderful guest on the show today, Nikhil Nandakopal, founder at AppSmith, CPO, product leader, manager, all sorts of things, building open source a low-code platform with an awesome global remote team. Welcome to the show, Nikhil. Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. I'm really excited to be here and talk to you about all things product. Let's get started with a little elevator pitch on yourself. Give our listeners the rundown. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm Nikhil. I'm, you know, the head of product at AppSmith today, but I've actually been an engineer for the better part of the last decade. And, you know, I've, I've built tons of applications, everything from the e-commerce space to the travel industry and more recently a health tech startup. And fortunately or unfortunately, I've always had the opportunity to work with internal tools. And I've always seen that internal tools were just not the best engineering effort in, in, in companies. They hardly ever got any product or design bandwidth. It was generally just me and a couple of business folks figuring out what the tool should be. And of course, what you end up shipping doesn't really look the best or have the best UX at the end of the day. Uh, and that kind of got me thinking that, you know, if, if internal tools are like really important for businesses to scale and grow, which I saw they were, it always made me wonder, why isn't there like a better solution for them? And, you know, that it was just an itch that I really wanted to scratch for myself as a developer that, hey, why isn't there a better way to build internal tools? And that's where you know, me and my co-founder got together and we decided that, hey, there had to be like a much better way to do this. And that's when we built AppSmith. So for those of you who don't know, AppSmith is a open source, low-code platform for developers to build internal tools. Stuff that would take you typically a couple of weeks or sprints can now be built in just a few days or hours. And that's the beauty of AppSmith because we give you most of the reusable components that you need to build these internal tools, like widgets or integrations with data sources. We give them to you out of the box. But what's really, really cool is that you can still write code. So whenever you need to customize the platform or write your own specific business logic, you can just deep dive into JavaScript and customize your tool exactly the way you'd like it to. You can hit deploy and deploy your app with the click of a button. And you can even connect it to Git and version control your application. So it's an all-in-one developer platform for you to build your internal tools. Thanks for giving us that rundown. There's an awesome spur of new companies building in the low-code, no-code space. I'm loving all the tools. I'm taking advantage of many of them. I'm very excited about the space that you're in now. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the journey. How was building the company, the tool, you had this spark of innovation or what could be that opportunity? Then you partnered with your co-founder, right? We both happened to be looking for our next uh, startup and what to build. And being core engineers, we really wanted to make engineering easier. And funny enough, we both faced similar problems in the internal tooling space. And with, you know, we saw a bunch of no-code tools out there. 
But it got us thinking that there was just nothing that was developer friendly and would really service the use case of building something complex like a customer support dashboard or an inventory management panel. Most of the tools were really focused on kind of creating an app on a spread, which is a great use case for a lot of internal tools. But, you know, as an engineer, you just want a way to be much, much more efficient in your day to day. And my co-founder is actually a backend engineer and, you know, he, he, he has this grudge with HTML, CSS. He absolutely tests it. So, you know, that got us thinking that there's a lot of backend engineers out there who just really, really dislike HTML, CSS and need a way to build custom UI. So can we just make their lives a lot, lot easier by, you know, building a, a simple drag and drop solution that you can connect to any backend out there and maybe customize the rest of it with, uh, you know, a little bit of JavaScript and, you know, give you an all-in-one solution. And that's, that's kind of how it began. Yeah. So we got together, we started brainstorming. How can we do this? Uh, we eventually had a third call co-founder, Abhishek, who was Arpit's uh, previous co-founder. And, you know, the, that's when we kind of hatched the plot to build apps together. So you got together, you did some brainstorming, you figured out the concept or the idea. Did you develop a business plan? It actually all started with figuring out who we really want our user to be. And, and you know, I think that's because we kind of knew all the problems that, okay, you know, building applications is hard. I think everybody knows that you need everything from front-end knowledge to back-end knowledge to design knowledge and, you know, you need uh, QA testing capabilities mm. and whatnot. But we figured that we needed to first align on who was going to be the core persona around this product. And that's when we said that, hey, it's going to be a core developer product. We're going to focus on back-end engineers who, you know, really struggle with HTML and CSS. And from there, we actually started deep diving and figuring out, hey, what are the type of problems that, you know, these engineers have? You're trying to build a custom internal tool in a setting. So what are the, what are the typical challenges you have? And that's when we went really deep and we looked at a bunch of different companies from across different spaces. <coughs> and there was a really interesting insight that came off from that, which was that even though a lot of companies from the same space, like you could take e-commerce, com three e-commerce companies, very similar business models, the same exact customer support dashboard, and the striking thing would be that all of these customer support dashboards would look drastically different. And that was really mm. interesting to see that the same tools in very similar companies actually had very custom UI and UX. And we figured out that that's because a lot of these businesses had their own way of running. They had their own integrities, their own operational workflows, their own data was structured in a particular format that they wanted to display to their internal teams. So we realized that all of these tools had to be custom built and you couldn't have a simple cookie cutter solution that would work for all of them. And that, that kind of sparked the entire thesis that, hey, if you only want to build a complex internal tool, you know, maybe we can give you some of the components out of the box. But if you really want that tool to be useful in an operation setting, we need to give developers a power to customize that last 20, 30%. And what better way to do that than allow them to just drop into code and write JavaScript or cus customize it with HTML, CSS. And, you know, if you want to collaborate, then there has to be a way to integrate with Git version control. Uh, so once we aligned on who was the user, we were able to like dig, dig deep into like what are the problems they face, what are the use cases, what are the setting. And then from there, the rest of the features and, you know, what the initial VUR of the tool should be kind of started to fall from that. You spoke with a lot of users, I'm assuming. The nice thing is you are one of the users, right? You yourself are back-end <laughs> engineers and you have this this background. So that also helps, I think, a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, being able to eat your own dog food is a huge thing yes, inside Asmith. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> I love that. You know, you piece together the the product, the idea, the concept. Is this something that you all worked on the side? Was this something that you got funding for? What was that process? It's something that we actually spent about six months 
just brainstorming, thinking through the business model, thinking about what the long-term goal should be. Because at that point in time, no-code, no-code was still not yet a buzzword. It was, it was still something that was kind of unheard of. But when we really looked at it, we kind of looked at the evolution of software. And what we realized was that this, this sort of thing has existed over years, right? Like people have always tried to build abstractions on top of software to make it easier for more developers to get involved into the software building process, right? Before you had like really, you know, assembly level code. After that, you've had, you know, slightly higher level languages that helped you. And now you have frameworks on top of those. And the way we look at no code, no code today is really, it's just a software abstraction layer that helps more developers get involved into this entire process. It's always been there, but I think yeah. the core has been that some of these platforms have been locked away inside enterprises, right? Like, mm. like you've, you've had really large players, like SAB is a massive, massive, typically you could say it's a no-code player, uh, but unfortunately the access to it has never been there inside developers because this kind of software has always been sold top down. But we looked at it as engineers and we said, hey, you know, as an engineer, you typically don't really have purchasing power. There's really no way for you to get access to this kind of software. And the software wasn't made to be really developer friendly. It was made to be mm. business friendly or operational friendly. And that's, that's kind of where the thesis for AppSmith came up to say that, hey, we need to build something that's super developer friendly, that's going to be developer first, that's going to help engineers actually adopt this and not going to be something that's sold top down, but something that developers can get their hands on, even though, you know, they don't really have purchasing power. And that's, that's one of the core reasons we actually went open source with the platform because we realized that developers don't really have a lot of say in terms of what software gets bought inside a company. But what they do have a lot of say is what software is incorporated in the tech stack, especially if it's open source, right? Mm. And that's kind of why open source is a huge part of AppSmith today and why AppSmith, you know, is and always will be open source because we really believe that developers need to have complete access to this kind of software. And we want to like make it like a pure developer first product. You're true product-led approach to go to market. You have this freemium model with your developer community. And now you're kind of evolving to this mid-market, larger business type of approach through a premium model. How has that been received? Is that actually working for you all? What were the early successes with that? We're still pretty early in terms of kind of launching our business edition. That's something that we're currently working on. But the kind of interest we've been generating has been really solid. And one of the best conversations we have is when a user kind of comes up to us and says, hey, you know what? I've already been using AppSmith for, you know, the last year. Mm. It's, we've had all this kind of wonderful success with it. And it's, you know, it's been a game changer inside our organization. Uh, we'd love to get these, you know, other premium features on board and, you know, just see how we can help contribute and support the company, you know? And that's such a beautiful conversation to have because you no longer try to convince the, you know, your customer of the value of the product. And that's what we really believe. We believe in proven value. So... Users or customers usually come to us and say that, hey, we're already finding value. Now, you know, tell us how we can give you value back. And, and that's the best kind of conversation because it helps us improve the product, helps us improve the business. And it kind of keeps us really in a tight loop with our users and our customers. And yeah. that's the true essence of the software. It's almost like customer-funded business models. You said that they're now upgrading their own license or something to pay for extra use. Generally, it happens that, you know, AppSmith starts off with a small team inside a large organization yeah. or like a small startup. And mm -hmm. eventually they begin to grow, you know, the software spreads, you build tons of internal tools. And then you kind of realize that, hey, I have all these tools, but I need a way to manage it, right? Mm -hmm. I, I suddenly need to be more compliant with security. I suddenly, you know, need to better way to manage all the people on the software. And that's where, you know, the premium issue kicks in. It makes it just easier to deal with a lot of apps and a lot of people at the same time. Mm -hmm. You started gaining traction through that bottoms up approach and you started hiring, right? You started growing yeah. the company and the organization. 
again, did funding come into this at all, or was it purely all customer funded? We did raise a early seed round with the Excel partners early on itself, because I think with AppSmith, we weren't really trying to discover the problem space or trying to figure out like, you know, what the people problems were. By the time the first six months had passed and, you know, as a team, we had come together, we realized that this was the exact problem we want to tackle. We figured out what the solution was going to be. And from then on, we just kind of decided that, hey, it's execution mode now. We really need to figure out how to mm. build the right thing, get our solution validated and kind of get it out there. So we raised a round of funding pretty early on and yeah, we haven't back since. Then you started hiring. This is usually not developer strengths, right? Like more the business <laughs> and growing a business. You guys are unicorns and great. Now you're kind of building that. How do you go about hiring the right people, building the teams? How did you go into it? That's a great question. I think at its core, we have a couple of philosophies that we try to stick to. One of the mo the main ones is we look for people who really align with our vision and believe in what we're building. So, you know, typically, even if there's a candidate that's really, really strong, if they haven't tried out the product, if they can't, you know, tell us where the product needs to improve or even just have a point of view of, what's good, what's bad, what they mm. liked, what they didn't like. That's a, that's a big no-go for us, you know, because you know, as good as you are, if you don't believe in what we're doing and, you know, if, if you don't care enough about it, we prefer just not, not to work with people like that. So that's really important, like, you know, product love, being able to understand what we're building, that's super, super important. The other thing that we really optimize for is like a growth mindset because we really believe that, you know, I mean, like you said, we're engineers today and we're doing all these other things. And that wouldn't have been possible if we didn't believe in growing our own skill set and, you know, being able to branch out into different areas. So we really value people who come in with the idea that, hey, you know, I can pick up more than what I just do today. I can learn new things. I like mm. to invest in myself and I like to learn what's out there in the world and kind of grow along with you. So I think that's the other thing that we've really optimized for. And that's been working for us really well. In fact, I'd say like employee retention at AppSmith is pretty awesome. It's like, I think we have most of our early team members from right. like three years ago. Three years that you've been building this thing and then you're growing and you're hiring the right people. You're retaining well. Ideally, you're growing your customer base as well and revenue's looking good. And now what? What's that next step? How are you going to continue to scale? And how do you think about scaling product teams? One of the most important things when scaling product is to kind of be aligned around the overall vision for the company and the strategy around that. And uh, one of the core things that we really believe in AppSmith is to just focus on retention. Like that's the number one thing that's there on pretty much every product person's mind. Like, hey, how do we kind of, you know, enable developers to get retained on the platform? And, you know, how do we enable them to build their first applications? Because that's like the really wow, aha moment that, hey, I built my first app in a couple of hours. This is, this is so incredible. It's a very empowering feeling the first time you actually get your app off the ground, mm. you know, and, and everyone kind of thinks about that internally and kind of gather people around that one idea is, is the way that we think about scaling. Now, honestly, personally for me, I think, you know, this is the first time I'm doing this. So uh, there have been like quite a few challenges, especially because we kind of grew pretty fast and, you know, a lot of the decisions we did, a lot of the way that we built the product happened through our own understanding of the world and things that we learned, the people who we've spoken to over the last three years and, you know, mm. a lot of personal experiences we've had and as we have more people on board on this journey and we're trying to kind of disseminate some of those experiences and some of that tribal knowledge if you will it can get quite complicated because a lot of times you tend to see the contradictions in your own statements or in your own thought processes when you're looking from the outside in which you may not have even realized the first time around 
right? Mm. So I think right now we are figuring out ways to disseminate information really well across the board, especially being a remote team, you know, writing a lot and kind of creating documentation around, you know, why things are done a particular way and, you know, what the fundamental values of the company are, the product are, and how to kind of think about product and people. I think that's, that's one big aspect of it. But the other aspect that I'm trying to focus on right now is how do you create these feedback loops within the company and the product so that when people want to take autonomous decisions, there are inbuilt kind of feedback loops to let you know that, hey, you know, this decision is pretty a, probably a good decision or not so good decision. So some of the things I look at are like, hey, when we're shipping something, have we actually talked to users? Or, hey, mm. you know, have, have we, do we know what we're trying to improve? You know, like, what's the outcome here? Have we thought about, you know, what's actually going to change if we do this? Or by not doing this, what's the potential risk we might run into? So a lot of times I'm trying to think about the fundamental processes that are the, the kind of checks and balances inside the company so that yeah. everyone has some sort of feedback to fall back on every single time they're trying to take an autonomous decision so that they can kind of move faster. So that's, that's one of the things I'm trying to do. The other thing I'm trying to do is actually get out of a lot of conversations and not be present to say yes. I think, you know, early on, you try to say yes to a lot of things and say that, hey, yeah, we're going to do this or this is, this is a good direction. But more often than not, I'm, I'm trying to instill that, you know, consent is by default. Like, hey, if you haven't heard something, then that is yes by default and you should just go ahead and, you know, try to only step in if there's something that I strongly object, you know, like something that goes against like a fundamental value or mm. something that I think maybe I'm, I need to add a perspective or a data point that somebody hasn't thought about before, right? So unless it's something really drastic, I kind of try to stay away from most conversations and try to coach people to really make the best decisions and, you know, have the right data to make those decisions. So I think these are the two ways I'm primarily thinking about it. The context is important there, sharing the context, the alignment around company vision. You're talking about how do you build more feedback loops or that sense of quality in terms of product delivery or initiatives that we're bringing to market, putting those checkpoints in. How do you think through that? And then stepping back a lot of getting out of those conversations and having the team learn and fail and grow, right? One of the interesting feedback loops that we have inside AppSmith is that pretty much every single person, whether you're a developer, you're a designer, product manager, every single person is part of our A-Force, which is also like our support team. So we're actually known for like having one of the best supports out there in our community edition. And what that really does is it, it really helps people empathize with our developers and users because they get to see the type of problems they're facing on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, when you have to like really answer the same question over and over again, over like, you know, a week, two weeks, you tend to realize that, hey, this is a big problem. Like most people are really asking us a very basic question of the platform that should be really easy to solve. Mm. And, you know, we got prioritized this and do something about this. So, you know, we have like all these small things that we do internally to ensure that everyone has as much surface area with our users as possible. And that's one of the great yeah. things about open source, building that community and creating that surface area. You said everyone's a part of the support team. How does that manifest? Is it like an hour a week? Is it, yeah, what does that look like? It's a completely a volunteer basis. So what happens is we actually have an internal tool where you can sign up and, you know, pretty much every team kind of encourages at least one person to say to volunteer for a week. And, you know, at most, maybe you'll probably end up doing like a week a year now with the kind of scale that we have. But even that week really just gives you so much context into like what people are thinking, what are the problems they're facing and, you know, what are their, what's really top of mind for our users and our community. Because the pulse of the community is the most important thing in an open source software. I love that approach to 
customer empathy growing that with the product team. Is that across the organization or is that just within the product team? Oh, no. Like I said, that's across the Whether, it's, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a designer, whether okay. you're QA, doesn't matter. Yeah, everybody. Talk to me more about the feedback loops or this kind of way that you instill best practices into building initiatives and shipping them to customers. Is this something that you have like a weekly check-in? Are you building templates? How do you think about that? It has to be a little bit more organic than that because there's only so much that process can, you know, really push you to. So another one of the great feedback loops we have is that we do all of our product management and all of our project management on GitHub, you know, right on, you know, GitHub issues. Now, GitHub issues is arguably not the best way to manage projects because their issue management is uh, quite, quite basic. But, you know, what it does is it kind of helps you really have all of your issues, your features, your bugs completely in the open and creates complete transparency between you and your users. In some sense, and actually in a lot of sense, open source is really the first version of building public way before building public was, you know, really popularized. So what it helps you do then is it allows your users to directly tell you if you're not working on something or if you're directly working on something. So for example, if a user sees that, hey, a issue hasn't been prioritized in like six months, even though they and a lot of other people have been asking for it, they're going to hold us accountable to that. They're just going to come and say, hey, you know, so many people are asking for this. Why aren't you doing this? Why, what are you, why are you building something else? You know, that's, that's not really valuable to us. And that's a great conversation to have because that feedback immediately turns the entire company around, right? Similarly, if, you know, we're sh shipping something out, we have all of our pipe reviews or all of our fake files also in public, including our product notes. So, you know, we get really quick feedback on validating a solution. So if you know that we are building something in terms of a solution, we can actually just put it out there on the GitHub issue and whoever cares about that issue is immediately able to give us feedback saying that, hey, this is a, uh, you know, this is too confusing for me. I wasn't able to understand it or, hey, this was really great. I could get through the flow super quickly. So that's another form of, a, you know, very organic feedback where you don't need to create a process of check-in or, hey, have you spoken to people or, hey, have you done this? It's just by virtue of us working in this fashion that we're able to talk to users more regularly. And similarly, also, you know, just being part of the Air Force, uh, you know, you're, whether you're on Discord, whether you're on Intercom, but, you know, you're on our Discourse uh, community channel, that's, that's where our users live. And they're naturally going to talk to you about their problems and about their ideas and about, you know, the awesome wins they've had inside their companies. And all that inspires you to build better stuff just because you're gaining so much content in real time. Tell me a little bit about the product organization today at AppSmith and what is your next challenge with growing that team? At AppSmith, uh, the way we think about the entire product org is we try to model it around the way we actually want to model software. Like, you know, Conway's law, essentially that, uh, you know, your entire software architecture tends to mimic your lines of communication inside an organization, right? So we try to think about the parts of the application that need to talk to each other and we figure out which of these communication lines need to be very well-defined and loosely coupled versus which need to be slightly more tightly coupled. We enter, we break up the entire org and product in, through those communication lines. And we have different teams that focus on those different parts of the product. So inside AppSmith, we have like a drag and drop builder that focuses, you know, on the entire web building experience. So that's, that's one part of the product. Whereas we also have another JavaScript engine that focuses on the business logic, right? And then we have another data source integration part product that focuses on the entire connection and querying logic. So all of these are different parts and we have product teams that focus on these different parts and try to kind of improve those different parts and create value with them. Now, I think one of the big challenges, you know, with an organization like this is <coughs> kind of ensuring that 
the entire organization is aligned towards a common goal and trying to ensure that all of these different moving parts are able to kind of create a holistic outcome that aligns with your strategic initiatives for the year, right? I think that's that's one of the big things that we're trying to do. And the other challenge is, you know, like I talked about, disseminating more knowledge faster as to, you know, how did this product reach the stage and what's the next stage that this product needs to go to. I think these are like two big problems that we keep talking about in terms of the product team. And I don't know, maybe you've tackled some of this before. I'd love to hear how you think about scaling product teams as well. I always see that evolution. You start with one team and that continues to grow and then it becomes larger than eight people or something like that. Like some insurmountable number that doesn't make sense for a team. And then you start to break things up and then you have dependencies and maybe it's a front end, back end team, right? And then you kind of scale by the tech, which is not as useful, but you know, it's kind of a nature of where you're at. And I love that you focus it around the feature sets or the products themselves. That first jump, it always seems to not go as planned. You diversify the teams in some way, shape or form. Some things work, some things don't, and then you continue to adjust. I think building that topology exercise into practice is useful of having that being a forcing function every year, committing to the year so you can experiment with it and truly work out the kinks and realize it, but then make those adjustments at the checkpoint to say what is working. Let's make some harder decisions. If there's more folks that code in a specific language, you know, it might be in that way. The way we're doing it right now is by customer value stream. And then you also have your platform. And so you'd have your platform, which is basically internally servicing the vertical teams. And then you have the vertical teams focused on a customer or a job. That's something I want to evolve to is have a jobs to be done type of organization where you have those uh, separations focused on the customer and the job. And then you can have the subsets that helps you scale. And you have a larger, especially with like a two-sided marketplace, we'll have that buy side, sell side. And then within that, you have these sub-segments or you can have a team based on one segment. I mean, you could scale it that way. I've also seen types of product strategy teams that kind of cut throughout more like growth teams where you're focused completely on fixing that retention curve or getting folks through the funnel, that, that activation phase. I think a healthy mix between those types of teams and those focus areas are important, but it becomes so much more important to get that definition for the product managers so then they understand how to build the strategies and how to piece together their work and how to envision how it fits within everything, right? Because you have the context. And I love that you're focusing on that vision, that mission's clear and everyone kind of is on board with that. But how do they contribute to that is the most important thing that you can kind of weave together with those teams of how do you tell that story? How do you give them those creative constraints to make good product decisions? And that's it's a challenge. I wish I had a clean, easy answer for you, but I think it's it's just something that you experiment, you see what works, what doesn't, and you adjust. That's great. Actually, I think the jobs we've done is one really interesting way of approaching this because when we look at some of these teams within the org, we see that they, they're each servicing maybe one or more jobs that you know, a typical user would really need. But each of these jobs also typically have like a leading indicator or a leading KPI that they're influencing in some way. And... A lot of times what we're trying to do is actually figure out how these leading KPIs can actually tie into the overall goals of the organization. Like, you know, if it's retention, then, hey, uh, you know, how are all of these different teams somehow mm. contributing to some leading right. KPIs that are eventually like pulling some lever retention and making it go up or down? How are they going to like, you know, influence that and thereby create their roadmap to begin influencing that? I think that I think that's a huge part of telling that story that you're talking about where these teams are able to autonomously pick up and build their roadmaps because they are aligned towards something that they're doing for the strategic initiative of the company. In terms of planning 
in strategic process, do you guys look at OKRs as that process or do you have another type of process you operationalize there? It's a bit of a mix. We don't very strongly follow OKRs in the true sense, but what we do is, you know, annually we figure out what, what do we really want to achieve this year? What are some of the top metrics that we really want to move? What are some of the top key strategic initiatives that, you know, we want to get out, create leverage for ourselves and for the, mm-hmm. you know, for the platform in the future. And then we kind of try to break that down into the teams where the teams then try to figure out, hey, their own roadmaps. What are the, you know, problems that they know that service the jobs that they are focusing on, you know, that they really want to do for our users and how do those eventually tie back to, you know, the larger initiative. So that's when, you know, if they have like 10 projects that they could potentially ship, they need to figure out, okay, in this time frame, I can pr- pr- probably do maybe four or five and what are the, which one of these more is more likely going to kind of influence that core initiative that, you know, whether it's retention or whether it's growth or whatever it is, how are we going to like influence that and, you know. They kind of try to autonomously pick those projects based on that. I like that. The way that we're experimenting with it now is focusing on the outcome and the objective, but it's the OKR framework. In the annual sense, you'll have your kind of company strategic pillars, which might be retention, for example, hitting a revenue target. You want to make some clear company strategy decisions within that. So it's not just retention, but it's here's how we're differentiating or here's a move that we're making. And then what we've landed on was maybe four to five different OKRs at the company level. And then it's almost like a pyramid where you kind of ladder up into that. The key result of one of those objectives is now an objective for a team to then go build a KR against. That's how we've been able to ladder it up, but it's very time consuming and you almost need like an OKR czar to help (laughs) the teams focus and plan all towards that. I do find that helps with alignment and then it's the initiatives that contribute to it, how ambitious you're being. And that's where that review cycle and it becomes super important and something we're dialing in. We have a good approach so far. We've kind of gone through a first cycle at it through this quarter. We have a lot of good learnings from it, but the team kind of did traditionally big rocks and shifting over to a more outcome-driven OKR process. So it's a bit of new things, new fundamental thinking. It's been already really helpful and valuable. So now we're just dialing in that process, what worked, what didn't, and adjusting those things. Timing of it's super important too. You can't like squeeze it in a week, right? Like all that kind of stuff needs to happen with enough leeway and thought. More often than not, it's actually a muscle you have to build inside the org over time, you know, like I I rarely, at least for us, it didn't really happen overnight. You know, we had to, we had to try it once and then we had to try Mm. it again and then we had to try it again. And we had to keep trying it until we really just got better at it. You can't give up. <laughs> so you, you get value out of it, right? You need some sort of planning process and then you'll adjust. That's kind of how we've been able to do that so far, but it's not perfect. Like you said, there's ways that it works at certain stages and it doesn't at others. But I'm also trying to figure out the right way to have that feedback loop of the, the product quality and what the expectations are. And sometimes when you're very feature-led initially, right, and you have this flux of features that are half supported, half not, you need to really make some hard decisions and have some bar of quality for these things as you're pushing them out. And don't just like ship the feature to the MVP and just leave it out there. Um, And you can really kind of start to aggregate a bunch of crap that doesn't really do anything for anyone because it's just harder to maintain. So we'll need to make some decisions to really focus and cut some things and invest in others that are somewhat working. That's difficult too, because, you know, all the features you build are your babies and especially you with your company, this is all (laughs) your stuff and the things that you've invested in. With over time, it is good to take that step back and just say, where are we at with it and how can we make it more efficient for our users and our customers? The nice thing, you have that tight feedback loop with your customers, right? With open source. So they're keeping you honest. (laughs) 
it's really just important to be okay to kill features and to be okay to redo stuff. And and that's a very fundamental product culture to kind of drive inside teams where you know, if teams tend to defend their features too often and, you know, say that, hey, no, it, it'll work. It needs just a slight improvement. Yeah. You know, we can just redesign it a little bit and make it, you, you kind of get into this endless loop of trying to iterate on something that's really just dead on arrival. But, you know, instead we kind of try to foster a culture where to say, hey, it's okay. We tried something. It didn't work out. Yeah. Let's, let's try and either completely rehaul it or let's try and ship something new. Like, have we learned anything? Has a problem changed? If the problem hasn't changed, then let's figure out a better solution. But if we figure out maybe this isn't a problem, then hey, it's just time to just you know, scrap this out and kind of reship it. One, one of the, the best extracts I think I have for, for this is, you know, we spent a lot of time building this real-time commenting feature that, you know, we thought that developers would really like to collaborate on building their applications. So just like Figma, they'd be able to leave comments for each other. But we didn't really see a lot of traction, you know, on the feature. And even despite having invested a lot of time in it, we really made it okay for the team to just go ahead and say that, you know what, we tried it. We made a big bet. It didn't work out, but we're going to scrap it now because it's going to take up space on our UI and, you know, space of the team to actually keep maintaining it. And that's okay. We're going to come back. We'll figure out collaboration in a better way. And we did. We actually, you know, integrated Git and people are a lot happier with Git. You know, they, they feel that like that is a much better version of collaboration than what we originally launched. So, you know, it's got to be okay. Maybe we'll bring back real-time commenting. Maybe we'll bring back real-time editing in the future. And, and, you know, that's that's perfectly fine. But it's okay to admit that, hey, this feature didn't really work out in its current state. And, you know, we just got to go back to the drawing board with that problem. It stems from leadership, right? It stems from seeing that example, allowing others to do that. It's tough. You have the right mindset going into it where now you can, the teams can see you making those hard decisions and being okay with that fail fast and that, that kind of mentality and the learnings and the opportunities that you're getting from that experience or that exposure to cutting these things. I think that's super important as well. Let's say that you know, we're in this ideal spot where we're aligned to the company vision, where we have these OKRs and planning dialed in, fine-tuned to perfection. You know, we're, <laughs> we're being ambitious with our strategy and we're continuing to hire product people. How do you do that outside of some of the other things that we've talked about? Is this something now that you had to build additional layers of management? Have you thought about clustering product people into different customer focuses? Have you thought about like APM programs? How else are you thinking about growing your product org? One of the other key insights we really have at AppSmith is that a lot of our engineers are actually some of the best product managers because it's a core developer product. And, you know, a lot of times more product people are probably just going to slow them down, you know. So we really look at the focus of the the product area, you know, what kind of value it's trying to, uh, to, trying to uh, deliver to the user. And we try to figure out how much... Uh, you know, user research uh, uh, needs to go into this. You know, is this a really fuzzy problem or is this a well-defined problem? You know, uh, do we already have some great ideas stemming out from our you know existing engineering design product teams that you know we can leverage? Uh, and we try to empower that as much as possible. So that's that's one thing we're really trying to make product not a completely separate function that you need to be a product manager to lead product, but trying to really foster that. Hey, you know, this is an engineering product. Most of us have faced this problem in the past. We all have a really strong point of view on you know, how this needs to be built. Let's try to identify the right leaders in the company and lead the right initiatives. So I think that's that's one part of like really trying to scale it. The other part is trying to grow certain product leaders inside the company so that they can actually take on more work and you know kind of oversee more product areas because 
a lot of the product areas are actually overlapping and interconnected in some sense. Like when you think about building a great UI, you need to think about the widgets, you need to think about the canvas, you need to think about performance, you need to think about, you know, the entire drag and drop experience. You need to think about how is this going to work on mobile. So we see that as product managers kind of settle in and really learn about the product and you know, get better, we see, we're thinking about ways to kind of grow them to lead multiple product areas before we can actually bring in more product or APM, you know, managers underneath them who can actually work with them to kind of build the product out because it's really important for the product to grow in a consistent manner and for a few people to kind of look at the overall vision of the product to ensure that what comes out at the end of the day isn't like a Frankenstein product with multiple features sticking out. You know, it, it has to come out well-shaped with a holistic vision thought through end-to-end. So we really believe in growing product managers and product leaders from inside the company. We try to really focus and identify them really early on. The people who are very vocal about certain decisions, who, are, who have opinions on how the product needs to be built and who we see are able to like drive change, we try to facilitate them into new roles and, you know, kind of grow them into those roles. One of the best examples of this is Pranav from our community team. So he heads our, our entire heal force and support system. And, and he was one of our earliest engineers, actually. He started as a front-end engineer, I think, past the product. And was, he, he was just really excited to, you know, lead this entire initiative. And, you know, we made it happen. And honestly, we couldn't have been happier, you know. He's doing like a fantastic job because we're literally known for like having some of the best support out there. And, you know, it's about just identifying the, the right people who are actually vocal about these things, who are talking about, you know, different parts of the product and who are advocating for change inside the company and empowering them to do that. I think that's super important. Interesting. You're finding these leaders and then you're coaching them on the skills and what have you. How else are you coaching them on product? Are you getting them outside help? Are you working on that yourself? What does that look like? We do definitely, you know, empower people to get outside help. Like we have, we have like these management accelerators and training programs and you know, other things like, you know, we have a, we in fact have an education budget for pretty much every single person inside the company. So if you just want to upskill yourself in any domain, you're completely empowered to do that. You know, and like it's, it's really, really some of, you know, some of the courses people are actually doing inside Aspen. So we, we definitely do all of that out of the box. But what we also do is we give people the opportunity to lead projects. And that's, that's the real world test of things, right? Like you, you can't just be a product manager or advocate for change in theory. We, we, ina- we firstly facilitate discussions where pretty much everyone can contribute and we enable certain people to take charge and take lead of those projects. Cause that's, that's really important to actually get them off the ground and, you know, make them feel like they can affect change inside the product. And these two things typically show the people who are able to affect that change and those who are only able to kind of talk about change, but not really affect it, you know, cause these two mm. things are slightly different. So you, you want to kind of empower people to firstly begin talking about it, but also give them the power to actually make those changes. And the ones who are able to follow through, I think they typically end up being the best product leaders inside the company. Let's talk a little bit about some homework for our listeners this week. If you're a part of a growing product organization that you can influence, there's so many good nuggets from this episode from Nikhil that you can put into practice, leverage in your organization. Nikhil, what would you give to our listeners this week that they can actually put into practice in their day-to-day? Driving alignment and change, creating buy-in inside teams is super important. If you're trying to do that while you're scaling your organization, you should really try getting your entire team on user interviews, getting them to participate in, in the support team, getting them to be a lot more customer-facing. 
basically get them into every single customer facing process out there, whether it's, you know, research calls, user interviews, solution validation, support deal, like get them into as many of those as possible. And you'd be surprised by how quickly people will get aligned around like the same type of problems that you're thinking about. I'd say that's the number one thing that the growing product teams really need at this stage. The support team thing was something I thought was really interesting that we could apply directly. So I love that piece. If I were to give some homework and assign some for this week as well, I would say approach your product similar to how Nikhil has approached his company. Who do you want your users to be? Who are they today? Understand that really well. Understand your market and your alternatives, right? Understand the value prop that you're providing to them. If you don't know what these things are, that's the first thing that you can do to start to build these things. Get close to the users, get close to their pain points. I love the open code opportunity to build in public. There's pros and cons to that, but I think there's a lot of good places where you can grow empathy with your users in that world. Explore that. What could that look like for your product? Answer three simple questions. Who's your product intended for? Problem that it's trying to solve. Solution and how it's better than the alternatives. Think about that in this way. It'll help you kind of position your strategy a little bit better. For product leaders out there, think about other ways that you're scaling your product organization and then how is it working for you? How is it not? And, and share. We'd love to hear from you. Nikhil, what else do you have for our listeners? Do you have anything to promote or plug? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that, uh, you know, if you're a product organization in today's world, I'm betting you need some internal tools. So AppSmith is the absolute best way to build these internal tools today. And you should definitely go check out our GitHub repo. It's appsmith.org slash appsmith. And, uh, you know, we'd love it if you could start it, download it, check it out, and join our Discord community and give us some feedback. Awesome. And tell them that Product Coffee sent you. <laughs> <laughs> it was great getting to chat with you, Nikhil. I appreciate it. And it looks like we finished up our coffee. So go level up. This has been Product Coffee. Produced and engineered by me, Kevin Gentry. Through our podcast partner, Anchor, you can now record a voice message and send us ideas or topics to cover. And who knows, we might end up playing it on the show. You can also become a supporter of Product Coffee by contributing a monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Product Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.